So many weeks ago, before I think I got COVID, I got strep, our home got broken into, <laughs> we were on a plan to preach on the issue of LGBTQ ideology and practice and culture and, and the, the word of God in our own lives. And this, this was an offshoot of Romans 1 where Paul deals with that in, um, in the middle of that chapter. Even though we're done with that chapter, I wanted to take some time to really unpack this issue because it's so big and it's so relevant to our current time. The, the cultural discord, confusion, hostility between those advocating for LGBT, LGBTQ plus ideology in our nation and those against it, it, it seems ubiquitous to me. It seems everywhere. I feel like at this point, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't see another story. I, I look at the news daily and, and I, I just feel like every time I open up the page now there's some new story about a lawsuit or a school board fight or some college protesting a speaker or, or firing a professor or disinviting someone or some uh, state governor passing legislation to prevent LGBTQ um, ideology or someone from the federal government trying to further it or some conflict in, in women's sports team having a grievance about a trans athlete or someone being kicked off of a TV show or a high school drama, um, or, or a high school being kicked out of a league due to some conflict related to this phenomenon. It, it, just, it just seems to be everywhere to me. And the Lord said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And at least in, in my lifetime, I've never seen at this point such a division in the house of our country increasingly. But, but the sense of division is not just on our phones and TVs, the sense of confusion, the sense of fear, and a sense of being overwhelmed by it all, it, it's in our lives. We struggle to know how to think or what to say to loved ones with this struggle. We struggle to know what to say to ourselves if we experienced this struggle ourselves. Weeks ago, I presented a message on Romans 1 and human sexuality being called Being Clear. And in that message, I sought to demonstrate through God's word, God's heart concerning same-sex attraction and homosexual practice. I sought to proclaim to you from God's word that, that it is not God's will for humanity, that it, the practice of same-sex uh, behavior is a sin, uniquely in, in a way that is... Uh, an abomination to God's heart. And, and I, I did that not as a beginning and end of this question, but, but as the, the first message to say, look, let, let's be clear about what God's word says. But I let you know at that time that I wanted to bring more. I wanted to try to set before you two additional themes I felt at that time were really important. That we not just be clear about this, but that we understand that how we deal with it is crucial and that we meet that question with not just clarity, but compassion and courage. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do that over the next couple of weeks. I wanna move into this question of, okay, if this is what God's word says, and if you didn't hear that message, it is back a few weeks. Um, I, I can send out a link this week 
and, and I will touch base on it again. Um, but, but if you didn't hear that message, it might be good to go back to it. And, and in the next couple of messages, I am going to touch on the clarity and God's stance on these things, especially because I didn't talk too much about the trans issue. But I think there's so much in common with those two things that if, if you learn about God's view, biblically speaking, on same-sex um, behavior, you can learn a lot about his posture towards, in, in terms of, is this right or is this not about trans behaviors? And I, I do want to say, I just want you guys to know, I, I'm not doing this because let's go after this issue and let's, let's antagonize and be hostile towards people who struggle with LGBTQ issues. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because of the cultural moment we're in, what I just talked about, because I see it affecting more and more families. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on this because I do think that there are ramifications for all of our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, about our reputation as a church. That it's just not going to go away. It's just going to, if the trajectory continues, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And let me just say one of the big challenges about this is that I think there's a unique way that the church has both failed in addressing this and a unique way that the church is potentially going to suffer in dealing with this. And I, I don't see that um, trajectory miti being mitigated against because we're in America and because we've enjoyed for 200 years religious freedom re relatively more than most nations have. So I think we've got to talk about it. And I think it's really important that we try to process it well together. So the two themes I want to try to bring you today are, are really, they're kind of attempts to be like bookends, if I could, like bookends of our, of our processing. On one end, compassion is necessary. On the other end, courage is necessary. And I, and I think... I'm going to talk about these themes in broad strokes today. So like, I, I'm not going to talk about how do we respond to uh, someone who comes out to us as a homosexual or a same-sex attracted. I, I'm not going to talk about questions of pronouns and how we deal with that. I'm not going to talk about um, whether we would go to a same-sex wedding. I, those are things I'm going to try to get to next week. But, but what I really want to do is, is ask our hearts to be prepared for those we love around us, the community around us, and even for ourselves, as we think about maybe for some of us who are struggling with this personally, like how does God think about this? And I think that um, it's just important to set our posture right in a broad way before we get into the details, if I could put it that way, that we not lose the forest for the trees, like technical answers of how to respond in this way, I think are our best grown in the soil of like, well, here's the broader big picture of, of the tent pegs of compassion and courage. So that's what I'm going to try to do. And I, I pray that wasn't confusing, but I, I'm going to keep going just for the sake of time. So the first tent peg, first bookend I want to talk about is compassion, being compassionate. 
And I'm going to do kind of an odd thing with this, and it was really inspired by our time in the Youth Devo in Mark 3, or in, in the Gospel of Mark. I'm just going to read you guys three little stories from the Gospel of Mark that all happen in succession. And, and, and I want to ask you at the outset, what's the problem here between Jesus and those who are opposing him? As you hear these three stories, I just want you to ask, ask the question, like, what's the problem? Like if you could sum it up. And there, there are different nuances of this, but I think at the core, there's something really central that's a big problem here that I think will really help us that doesn't have anything to do specifically with LGBTQ issues, but has principally, it has a lot to do with it. So these aren't stories about same-sex attraction. But the principle in this story is really important for us. So I'm going to read these three stories, and I want you guys to listen to them. Try to get your shoes in these stories, and think about this question. What's the problem between Jesus and those who are opposing him? This is uh, starting in Mark 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull out Mark 2. We're going to read a little bit of Mark 2 and Mark 3. And uh, you can just listen to me if you wish to. I'm going to start Mark 2, verse 1. Um, and I'm going to go uh, skip over a couple of passages in Mark 2, and then I'm going to start in Mark 3 with the first little pericope, little event there, okay? So here we go. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the Pharisees, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to him, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors And sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark 3, 1. The conflict grows and comes to a boil. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So my question is, what's the connecting theme between Jesus and these religious elite who are in conflict with him through all these stories? In this section, Mark is introducing Jesus to Israel. Jesus is going everywhere, healing, casting out demons. But primarily, he's preaching. He's teaching the good news that God's kingdom has come to earth in himself. That God is here to come to his people and gather them together. And all of Jesus' signs clearly fulfill the messianic prophecies. He's doing things by the book, so to speak, by the prophetic book that these Pharisees should know and did know very well that would say, this guy has a really good shot at being the Messiah, preaching good news to the poor, giving sight to the blind, proclaiming freedom for the captives, and the mercy of God. But again and again, Jesus runs into opposition with these religious elite. And listen, these religious people were just that. They were devoted people to religion. They were conservative leaders who thought of themselves as deeply religious, righteous, Bible-loving people for their day. But by the beginning of chapter three, after just like a chapter and a half of Jesus' ministry, they're ready to kill him. And Jesus is angry and he's grieved at them. What, what's going on? What's the problem? The problem is these people completely misunderstood Jesus' mission. They completely misunderstood the mission of the Messiah. We see it in chapter 2, particularly in a relevant way for us in verse 16 in chapter 2. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And another version of this, I came to call them to repentance. Don't you know that God says, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. You see that in the, the story of the paralytic. Jesus says this man's sins are forgiven. That's in keeping with the idea of the Messiah who came to forgive sins through his own blood to proclaim freedom for the captives and God's mercy. But they didn't even ask Jesus. Like they didn't, it didn't come out of their mouths. Like, why are you doing this? We, we don't understand. We're confused. They went straight to you're blaspheming. They didn't have a concern for this paralytic. They didn't rejoice in what Jesus had done or at least just stopped to say, wow. Like they went straight to you are blaspheming. In the synagogue, they weren't interested in, <laughs> that's the height of it. They're, they're filled with anger at Jesus. They can't accuse him of anything. They don't even theologically answer his good question. Is it, is it okay on the Sabbath to heal? Is it okay to do that? You think about that? They're just filled with anger. They, they have no concept of the core of God's heart in the mission of his son. Jesus has come to seek out and save those who are lost. He has come to give his time and attention to exploiters of the poor, these tax collectors. They would be dirty Wall Street, white collar criminals to us today. Very easy for us to hate them. Very easy for us to get on the side of, of well, whatever political persuasion you might think and just say, look at those Wall Street traders, those greedy jerks embezzling funds, Ponzi schemes, taking money from the elderly. That's what the tax collectors were doing. Jesus is going to dinner with them. These people who were eating the rich, exploiting the, eating the poor, exploiting the needy. He's going to dinner with them. And he's hanging out with prostitutes at the same time, the sexually immoral. These are not godly people. They're selling their precious gift of God's sexuality for money. They were, make no mistake, these, are, these aren't like wonderful people. These are greedy, immoral, thieving, crude, godless, faithless people. And that is exactly why Jesus came. And that is exactly who Jesus came for. He did not come, he says, for the spiritually healthy, but for the spiritually sick. Of course, what the Pharisees don't understand is that they're at the very bottom of the dregs of that. They're proving to Jesus that though they have the most light and revelation of God's heart and character in the Torah, they're making the worst mistakes because they're completely in contravention of it, contradiction of it. And I think this is where we, as a Bible-believing church, some of us, not all of us, but I think some of us, particularly older folks like myself, can go wrong. We, we can look at these lawsuits and these, these school board fights 
and these books that are being imposed on our kids in libraries and these drag queen story hours and it just fills us with anger. It fills us with confusion and fear, but it fills us with anger. And we can lose the plot of the gospel. That Jesus came for really evil school board people <laughs> and for drag queen story hour book readers and he came for these people just like he came for us. Listen, there is going to come a day when God is going to judge all people and establish his kingdom fully on earth as it is in heaven. He is going to right every wrong, pay back every misdeed, either through the blood of his son or by eternal destruction. And he is going to establish his kingdom on this earth as it is in heaven. He is going to do it. He is going to bring judgment. Make no mistake, he is going to do that. But make no mistake, this is not the time. This is not the time for him to do that. One day, Christ will put on full display his power and his authority over all governments and over all laws and over all evil rulership. He will do that visibly. He will do that totally. He will literally crush those who reject him physically and spiritually and rule this universe as its only sovereign. It is intimidating. It is fearful. And he promises to do that. But brothers and sisters, this is not that time. This is not that time. This is the time of ingathering. This is the time of proclaiming the day of mercy and grace. This is the time not of the feast, but of the harvest. There's an incredible, beautiful moment in Luke's gospel, when Jesus has his debut as the public Messiah, it's the very beginning of his ministry and he's at his home church and as his tradition, he gets up to be allowed to read the Torah and he pulls out Isaiah 61, which was a messianic psalm. And he starts going through the messianic psalm. He says, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. His spirit's upon me to proclaim freedom for the captives. And he goes through the list of messianic proclamations. And he says, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you look at Isaiah, right after that little verse, half a verse, the year of the Lord's favor, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus doesn't say the day of vengeance of our God. He says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's grace, stops right there. He stops right there because it isn't the day of vengeance of our God. 
That day is coming. That's not where we are on the prophetic calendar. This is the time of mercy, of the invitation to all sinners to come to Christ. This is the age of suffering for the gospel, if needed, and holding out the appeal to all people to be reconciled with God. It is not the time for judgment. And so my question for those of us particularly who are tempted at this, what we see is this encroaching ideology of godlessness. As we experience what we can feel like is a tsunami of formalized legislative enshrinement of sexual immorality. And we feel we're just overwhelmed with that. Not all of you probably feel that way, but, but some of us do. My question is, okay, so that, that feels bad, it's scary, it's intimidating, it's fearful, but what do we think we're here to do primarily as believers? What do we think we're here to do as believers? What is our main mission right now as believers? Is it primarily to save this nation from the LGBTQ agenda and to get laws passed that reflect biblical values? Is that our primary mission? Listen, I am not against that. I, I, as much as I can, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys, as much as I can, I, I would vote for that. I'm, I'm all for that dad and mom going before the school board to try to present the school system from indoctrinating kids into what I think is demonic sexual ideology. I'm, I, I'm all for that mom and dad's right to do that. As, as American citizens, God will call us to vote. And for some of us, we may be even called to political action vocationally. If that is your specific vocation, do it with all your might for the glory of God. But that's really not my question. My question is, as Christians, not American citizens, but as people who are Christian first, what are we here for? Yeah. I don't think we're here to get the right president and Congress in office and get our laws passed. I think the American church has been wooed and seduced by that ideology for several decades and it's not working. <laughs> and again, call a spade a spade. I'm going to vote conservative. I am. I'm not ashamed of it, but I'm not going to go around advertising it when I want to connect with people who aren't. It's not going to be my directive line of questioning. So if you pick up the Gospels and read all four Gospels, you read Romans, you read Galatians, you read Corinthians, let me tell you what you will not see Paul doing ever. You will not see Paul ever calling the churches to prioritize political action against the emperor. Don't you think he could have told the churches to protest and march for religious rights? Don't you think he could have told them to get into the neighborhoods and, and, and try to get the emperor to see the evils of homosexuality and pass? I mean, it was enshrined in their culture. He didn't do it. He wanted them to live for Christ in front of their neighbors. To not be cowards. But, but it wasn't their job to change the government. That wasn't their main call. I hope you don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm talking about where's the priority for the church? The priority for the church is not in getting the right president. The priority for the church is getting the gospel out to as many people as we can and helping those of us who know the gospel hold on to it and not give up on it. That's our priority. 
And if you read the Bible and you can see a different thing, come and help me see that because I'm, then I'm in error. I'm preaching the wrong thing. So that's my first point, is that, is that brothers and sisters, I submit to you that what the church is primarily here for is to be the hands and feet and eyes and ears of the one who even suffered to say to the world that needed him, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to call those who are in need of a physician to that physician. I came for them. I submit you that we're here to be a witness of love and holiness of God to a world headed towards the day of judgment that is coming and to warn them to flee that wrath to come by turning to Jesus. That's our priority. And so, you know, the way I kind of was thinking about this is as I struggle with it myself, am I prepared to let Jesus' heart of compassion for the sinner rise above my fear and anger at what is happening in our culture? Am I prepared to go into Starbucks and look at that Starbucks worker who's all dialed up in an obvious, I don't mean any pejorative or hurtful way to say this, but, 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 but all made up an obvious transsexual situation going on and look at that person and, and think to myself, not, oh my gosh, what is happening to my country? That is so disgusting. But to think that is the person who Jesus came to save. How can I, how can I maybe take one step towards loving them with a word, with, with a, a smile, with a willingness to be gentle and kind and, and recognize that I am much, I have much more, apart from Christ, I have way more in common with that person than I do with Jesus Christ. Am I prepared? That's my question. Am I prepared? Are you prepared? Are we prepared to let Jesus' heart of compassion for the sinner rise above our fear and anger at what is happening in our culture? Because I'll tell you, I I do get angry and I do get fearful. But God has work for for us to do in in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, increasingly often in our own families. We can't do that if our first concern is how to make sure we stay safe and separate and protected from the sinner. As citizens of the kingdom of God first, above being citizens of America, we can't be satisfied with political success and protection. We can't be satisfied with that. We must cry out for and long for, have the heart of the Savior who didn't come to give us lives that are comfortable and pain-free, but he came to give us the glorious dignity of having lives that are part of his mission to seek and save the lost from eternal destruction. Second point, courage, being courageous. If you want to go to 1 Corinthians 6, you can. If you want to just listen, you can. In this passage, Paul is talking to a church with all kinds of sin issues. 
And in this particular part of the letter, some of you might remember this from other sermons, Paul's been talking with this church about their pride concerning their leniency and their tolerant attitude about sexual immorality in their midst. Paul decries their boasting and he says they should be ashamed rather and that they need to expel the sexually immoral man from the congregation and tell him courageously that he's not part of the church anymore until he repents of it. And he says this is, in a very difficult passage, God's method to hand this man over to Satan so that his flesh might be destroyed, but his soul saved on the day of the Lord. So this is, this is all an attempt to save this man's soul from eternal destruction. And then in the context of all that, Paul makes it clear that while we are to be in the world and befriend worldly people, who make a practice of sinning. He says we cannot be like the world. The church must not be like the world. There, we must not let those in the church live sinfully without repentance. We must in fact confront them and if need be, if they will not repent, expel them from fellowship. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, let the world be the world, but the church must be the church. It's not your job to fix the world. It's not your job to discipline the world. It's your job to fix the church, to discipline the church, to keep the church pure. It must be holy or else it can do no good for the world. And then a few verses later, he just goes full on, pulls off gloves for this church that's really struggling. And he explains why it's so crucial to not be a church that lives as the world does. Beyond the question of witness, he says it's, it's even more crucial than simply witness. He says this in verse nine of chapter six. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those who habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And here's where we need courage in this culture, cultural moment. Because brothers and sisters, among unrepentant greed and unrepentant lying and unrepentant stealing and living a life of violent words and unbridled anger, which these are vices that probably everyone in this country could get behind and say, oh, that's awful. Among all those vices that Paul says, damn people, to eternal destruction unless there's repentance. Paul names not only adultery, but specifically he names homosexual behavior. And when Paul speaks of homosexuality, he uses two words in the Greek to be very precise. And without being graphic, Paul describes both the active and passive partner in homosexual behavior. 
He wants there to be no mistake. And listen, I touched, I, I, I talked about this in my first message, but it bears repeating. There is no relevance in this passage as to whether this behavior is monogamous or two people who consider themselves married. As I said before, in that message, message in Paul's day, monogamy and even gay marriage were known. The emperor himself married a man in publicly. Because for Paul, as for Christ, who came embracing the Old Testament and fulfilling it, this does not justify, whether it's monogamous or marriage, this does not justify the homosexual act. The issue is that the homosexual act itself is unnatural. It is itself a violation of the creator's intention for his life-bearing image in male and female. It is a perversion of his gospel reflection in the husband and the wife. And it is an unholy abomination to God. And Paul says, without shame or apology, that those who practice this sin without repenting will be eternally damned by God. Most of us can, if we're, if, if, if we're not struggling with the issue of eternal damnation, which itself can be very problematic for, for some of us, we, we could get behind these ideas that unrepentant greed and lying and stealing and living a life of unbridled anger, that all makes sense. But more and more and more and more, it's very hard for not just the world, but even the church to see And to be able to say an amen when God says homosexual practice is an abomination to me. We, we just want to say increasingly, oh God, that's me. It's too much. They're married. Their marriage looks better than my parents' marriage. The way they treat each other is more loving and more polite and more kind than the way my parents did. And you know what? In many cases, I think that's absolutely true. But God says, no, no, no. That's not, you don't have a right to tell me what is right sexually. You don't have a right to tell me what is holy and what is not holy. We don't have a right to tell that to God. I'm the creator. I'm not pleased with that marriage or that husband and wife treating each other poorly. I will judge that. It was stopping my tracks again to see. Paul put unbridled anger among those habitual sins that damn people unrepented verbal abuse. But Paul is proclaiming what the rest of the scriptures teach, which is that those who practice the sin of homosexual behavior without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we have to be courageous about this. Many churches today are proud like the Corinthians church. They're proud of their tolerance for sexual immorality. They see themselves as open and compassionate and relevant and so much better than a Bible church like ours or so many that protested. Not too far from here, on a big banner, there's a church just a few blocks away that boasts something like this. Our faith is ancient, but our thinking is not. Our faith is ancient, but our thinking is not. As if thinking and faith are mutually exclusive. <laughs> well, they're not exactly saying that, but you get the point. 
they're making it clear that they're proud of their approval of those who practice homosexuality. They're better because they're open-minded and they have a good heart. To that kind of thinking, Paul would say what he said to the Corinthians, you're proud. You're lying about God and you should be ashamed of yourselves. Any church, any Christian that teaches knowingly that God blesses and approves what sends people to eternal destruction should be ashamed. How can we be a true ally if we're lying about God? How can we be a true ally of the LGBT community if we're content to represent half Christ? To eat with them, laugh with them, befriend them, but never bring any call to repentance when God is longing for their repentance. To say to the sick, oh no, you're healthy. I'm not going to impose my views on you. You have no need of a doctor. He's great. He's, he's fine with you. It's fine. To say to those who are in darkness, oh, be deceived. Those who practice unrighteousness, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not only a half Christ, it's a false Christ. And a false gospel that not only denies repentance and the need for it, but keeps them from the Christ who alone longs to forgive their sin and alone has the power to change their heart and give them his own spirit so they can leave, so that they can live lives of holiness, either as single people or find the grace to perhaps marry in, in, a, in a biblical marriage if God should give that grace. So that's my final appeal. appeal. And listen, I, I know some of us might have real questions. I saw some of, your, you know, some of the emails you wrote me. I know in our church, there's still questions about what is the real biblical stance of homosexuality? And I wanna help you as much as I can with this. In fact, I've got a book today that I'm gonna give to some of you and I'm gonna put one on the, um, on the table. It's by a, a, an Anglican priest named Sam Albury. Some of you guys might know about Sam. He is a same-sex attracted um, pastor in England. He's brilliant, he is compassionate, and he's courageous, and he's clear. And this is a little book. It's not that long a read. I read through it driving around in my car in, in less than a week. But he presents a clear case of what I think is, is God's word on this issue. And he presents it with courage and a tremendous amount of compassion as someone who has suffered a lot with this. And has been mistreated and misunderstood, which is what happens. There's a unique pain to same-sex attraction and to trans desires. We'll talk more about that next week. And he's experienced it and he speaks to it about it from a place of Of, of personal experience, but also biblical fidelity that's absolutely beautiful. Um, so I've got this book for a few of you. I've texted some of you guys, and, and we're gonna we're gonna have it here. But if you, it will be out there on the table if you're interested in it. But if, as Sam Albury believes, and I believe, if God's word is clear, then we have a question to answer here. If God's word is clear, are, are we prepared to be unashamed? of the words of our Lord? Are we prepared to be unashamed of the words of our Lord so that we can be his voice when he gives opportunity to call 
fellow image bearers who are stuck in this sin to repentance and faith. Are we prepared to be unashamed? And and listen, in the future months and years, I might be hyper-pessimistic, but I think this is possibly gonna cost us dearly. The loss of friends, the loss of reputation, the loss of jobs, the loss of family, the loss of income. In many cases, we'll be called hateful bigots who should be ashamed of ourselves. It's already happening. You, you know better than I do, some of you. But it would be eternally worse to be ashamed of Jesus and his words on the day of judgment. So we're called to courage. Ironically, it's a courage that's f- fuel. For the, it, it, it's, it's a kind of courage that's fueled by the right kind of fear. And Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the angels. But whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. If we have the right kind of fear of the Lord, we can have the right kind of compassion and courage towards those who need him. So we'll talk in more specificity next week, but those are the two bookends of compassion and courage. And again, if you, if you are still confused about what the Bible says about this issue, please talk to me about it. It's my job to try to help you with that. And I think there are some amazing, great resources I can help you with, even beyond these. We pray. Lord, please help us with this. Help us to be clear about your, what your word says. Help us to be compassionate with people who need you and are suffering and struggle with sin, just as we struggle with sin and need you. And help us to be courageous so we can honor you and actually be of use for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.